0: And you're listening to 94 WIP as we ease on out of conversation and into WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon, and I'm pleased to welcome here for conversation my guest. My guest um, talks about growing up in Kensington, worlds away Kensington from some of the great suburbs of Philadelphia, but it's something that's a story that all needs to be told. Her new book, Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter, P.H. Sidoc, her new book, Mainlining Philadelphia. Good morning, Dr. Other.
1: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Peter. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All
0: right. Um, it's a long road from the mainline of Philadelphia to mainlining in Kensington. How did you take that road?
1: Uh, well, I mean, that's <laughs> that's kind of a, a loaded question, but um, I actually, um, my father was born and raised in in Kensington and um i lived there for quite some time from the time i was you know probably about 3 to um you know in my early into my early uh teens and um it was a rough neighborhood to grow up in but my dad worked really hard to to, to get us out of out of the neighborhood but um that story is interesting because my father you know was an entrepreneur i guess we should say and and spent a lot of time um dealing and manufacturing uh, methamphetamine, cocaine, marijuana. So we lived a very kind of dysfunctional, uh, you know, in a crazy dysfunctional family. And then um, he went away to jail for quite some time. And then when he went away, um, that's when things got even crazier because my mom was kind of given the opportunity to continue this, this kind of drug business that my father had started. And, you know, that's when things got, you know, progressively worse because my mom really struggled and she got into, you know, drinking and, you know, back in the day doing, you know, Quaaludes and different benzodiazepines. And I was I was pretty young at the time. So, you know, that was a pretty big struggle. And then, you know, that's kind of how it all it's kind of how it all started. And, you know, by all means, you know, based upon, you know, just a little bit um, that I just shared with you, you know, I was on a trajectory, or, or you know, statistically on a on a trajectory to to kind of end up like a lot of my peers did, you know, getting involved in drugs, alcohol, um, addiction, and, and things of that nature. And and I just worked really hard. And believe it or not, as crazy as my family was and my parents were, um, they they did something that I think would benefit a lot of kids, whether you know, you live in this gorgeous home, you know, out on the main line, or whether you live, you know, like I did above a bar, because my dad owned a bar called Utter Nonsense after my last name at Kensington and Somerset in Kensington. Um, they educated me a lot on addiction. Um, from the time I was probably five, six years old, they started talking to me about, um, you know, what addiction is and in terms that I could understand. You know, I remember my dad saying to me, hey, hey Jerry Lynn, you're you're wired differently than other kids. And I, was, I would look at him like, what does that mean? And he would say, you know, your brain's a little bit different. Like you'll start to hang out with kids. And it's normal, you know, as you grow up to, to want to experiment, to want to, you know, have a beer, or smoke a joint or, you know, do things like that. But you'll do that and it'll be a lot different for you than it would be for other kids because me and your mom both struggled with addiction. And it's kind of like waking up a monster inside your body. And if you wake that monster up, um, your life may be the kind of life that you've seen me and mom have. So I think that early education really helped me, despite all the craziness that was happening around me, um, which kind of eventually put me on, on my path. Because, you know, Peter, my, my first career was in radio sales. So I sold in the radio market. I did radio sales for close to probably 10 years. I was in I was in advertising.
0: Okay. <laughs> but how did you reconcile your parents saying, do as I say, not as I do, with what they were doing?
1: Yeah. um, I think um, one of the other things that that helped me with that is just feeling really loved by my parents. So even though, you know, they were crazy and at times they put me in really dangerous situations, like, for example, you know, um, when my dad went away to jail, again, he puts all this pressure on my mom to, to continue this, this kind of drug empire that he built. And, you know, there were times when, you know, my mom struggled with her mental health and, and she struggled with drinking. Like I had mentioned before, and we were, we were homeless for a period of time. Um, before, you know, you know, my, my father actually got out of jail early because my mother's sister um, helped to get me off of the streets. My father found out that I was on the streets with my mom from jail realized that things weren't weren't well you know I was I I remember hitchhiking in different cars with with my mom you know being in in strange houses and my father kind of you know found out about this and literally had her sister come and grab me uh, knew where I was oddly enough um, come and grab me off of the street to go with her so as far as reconciliation goes I think I was I was upset and I was hurt and I was angry for a long time. And all of those feelings are super normal. I mean, you're resentful. And, you know, the people that are supposed to be taking care of you um, really didn't do that much of a great job at certain times, even though, oddly enough, they didn't practice what they preached and I did feel loved. So it took me a long time. Um, and I really think pursuing my education a little bit later in life in, in psychology, um, Really helped me to gain a clearer perspective and to be empathetic towards my parents. Uh, when you when you enter into a, a doctoral program, you know in psychology, um, it, it's highly kind of recommended that you do some self work, that you engage in your own kind of therapy. So um, I did that uh, even before the program. I, I worked with therapists. I talked to people about my feelings, and through that and my education. I really learned that a lot of my parents' struggles were due to, you know, severe mental illness, especially my mom. She had significant, you know, major depressive disorder. And and with my dad, it was, you know, it was more, you know, drug addiction and things of that nature. So getting that knowledge and that education allowed me to be empathetic. To what they were doing and inadvertently what they were doing to me as opposed to kind of festering and harboring that that anger and that resentment and those really bad feelings because holding on to feelings like that you know ate away at me Um, it didn't make me feel better to be angry so I needed to find a way for myself to not be angry and for me it was learning as much as I could about people who struggle with drug addiction and mental illness
0: as a child you were in school, friends, teachers. Yeah. All right, Jerry, what does your daddy do for a living?
1: <laughs> um, my dad was a kind of a, a smart cat a little bit. There was no formal education there. He went to Edison High School, um, you know, down in Kensington. I think he dropped out in, in ninth grade. But um, he was good at trying to do both. So while he was... Um, really making all of his money dealing drugs, he worked for a period of time at Mrs. Smith's Pie Company. so And that wasn't a lot of money, but what he would do was kind of work in a legal way in order to take attention off of him regarding what he was doing in an illegal way. Um, So he did a lot of that, and he was very entrepreneurial. Like I said, when I was about 13, he bought the bar down you know, in the middle of the epicenter of where all of the, you know, all of the, where you can get a lot of your opioids, a lot of your illicit opioids like fentanyl and heroin, he, he bought the bar right in the middle of that. Um, so, you know, he always had something else going on. Now, granted, after he got out of jail the last time, um, his, his family, his 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 brother and his brother-in-law actually were the ones in street terms who snitched him out because they wanted to kind of participate more And what he was doing with this with this drug you know this drug business that he had and they're the ones that kind of set him up and put him away so after he came out um you know at that time i was i was young i was probably four or five years old um he kind of saw the mess that that his behavior created with me being out in the street with my mom with my mom not doing well um and tried the best he could to 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 work legally so so the first thing he did was he opened up a small, I don't know if you remember like those penny candy stores where you, you could pick out like, you know, the the candy. Um, and then he had like hand dipped ice cream and like different staples that you would need, like you know, bread and milk. I remember. So, yeah. So he had, he called it little Jerry's and, and he had that. Um, he, he tried to make that grow. He grew that in, in Port Richmond. We lived at Tulip and Lehigh after he had gotten out of jail with his mother and it was a really run down building and the basement of the building was pretty cool cuz it had been a business in the past so he scrounged up you know whatever he had left over from from hustling and opened up this this candy store so when you go from from dealing you know large quantities of illicit drugs and doing them to getting out of jail trying to be clean and then trying to live a clean lifestyle as much candy as you try to sell it really can't provide for a family so he would he would kind of do things like that then he had a masonry business and he did he did construction and that's what really helped us get from living down in a bad neighborhood to moving out to northeast philadelphia for a period of time before he went and and bought the bar um so he had that going on and then my mom was a working hairdresser my mom always worked um, you know, did hair in Northeast Philadelphia. She would do hair at salons, and then she would actually go into people's homes, and she would do hair that way. So that's kind of how we scraped by. And then, you know, my mother's family is a very Italian-American family, and my dad is not Italian at all. Um, and they weren't really happy with, with the marriage um, initially. Um, they would call him a metagon, and, and, and if you're Italian, you know that a metagon means it's somebody who's, who's, who's you know, American. They're not Italian. So they would help financially um, my grandmother especially would kind of help when when my dad was trying to rebuild his life after you know after dealing drugs and, and making a life in an illegal way for so long and, and, and you know it, it was hard and, and we struggled a lot but um, for a period of time we made it um, and, and things were normal from the time I would say from about 7 to 12 um, they were kind of normal we moved out to northeast Philadelphia Um, I went to, you know, Catholic grade school. I went to St. Catherine of Siena um, grade school, and then I went to Nazareth Academy High School, um, and things were as normal as they could be. There was a lot of domestic violence between my parents. My father did get violent when my mother would drink, and and at that time my mother would binge drink. Um, But for me, you know, that was much more normal, as crazy as that sounds, and, and tolerable even though it was traumatic than what my previous life had been. So, um, you know, we we went down that route for a while, and then, you know, my parents ended up splitting up when I was about, you know, 13, and that's when my dad went and bought this bar in the middle of of Kensington. He went back, back to the neighborhood that we worked so hard to get out of, and then things really took a crazy turn after that. turn? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it got, I had to take a sip of coffee there. <laughs> so it got, that's okay. Yeah. It it got even crazier. So um, when he bought the bar, now my dad was a convicted felon. I mean his rap sheet was, I mean the last time I pulled his rap sheet, which is interesting because of the work I do now, I'll, I'll go on and I'll look at his court dockets. and his his rap sheet was pretty was pretty extensive. And I don't know how he got the bar. So a, a big bone of contention between the two of him, two of them, him and my mother. When he wanted to buy this bar was I can't get a there's no way I can get a liquor license there's no way the liquor control board is going to give a convicted felon a liquor license so he wanted my mother to do it and this is when they were you know starting to fight and argue because my mother was convinced that my father was having an affair with and it was a very taboo relationship it wasn't um, the person that he was having an affair with. Um, you know, was it, it was a very illegitimate relationship, and I'll kind of l- leave it at that. Um, so anyway, so all that's happening, and they're fighting, and he ends up leaving my mom to be with another woman, wh- which was a very taboo type of type of relationship. Um, and then my mom kind of, you know, go goes crazy, you know, is very upset and sad and crying and depressed and all that. About you know around this time, I'm about 12, and she goes back to one of the. Uh, men that was working for my father, you know, selling, selling drugs for him years prior who I was out on the streets with. So I was out on the streets with my mom and this gentleman named, you know, his first name was, was Eddie. And, um, you know, he was, he was kind of working for my father. And as soon as my father went astray and, and, and went with this other woman, my mother found, found this man, hunted him down and ended up back with him. So that was a pretty um, traumatic thing to be a part of because, you know, Years prior, you know, Eddie was, wasn't the nicest person to me, and he struggled a lot with, with addiction and drinking and things of that nature. So to have him pop up in my life again was, was pretty scary. So that that's kind of, you know, what happened after that. And then, you know, the book goes on um, to, to talk about the different characters that would come into the bar um, and just the different experiences that I had, you know, as as a young kid, you know, I had no business being behind the bar. But you know, after going to Nazareth Academy High School, I'd take the bus and the L down to, you know, back down to Kensington to see my father, and he'd throw me behind the bar, and he taught me how to tend bar. And most of our clientele were working girls that worked the corner to support, you know, their drug habits, um, their Johns, um, some people that that had lived in the neighborhood for years, and um, you know you know we had people running you know running horses and running numbers so it was, it was a pretty interesting um, you know place that my dad had had created that kind of lended itself to me really getting to to see a, a up, up close and personal aside from my parents struggle with with addiction other people's struggle with addiction, which really inspired me even more to want to learn why people do this and 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 how this is something that um you know, at first I thought it was a choice. Like, you know, how can you choose to, to do drugs? You know, how can you choose to be like this? You know, your life is in shambles. You know, you're, you're selling your body. You're, you're doing all of these things to support your habit. And from where I'm sitting, it doesn't look like fun. So how can this be be a um, something that that other people look at as fun. Oh, they're, or, you know, oh, they're just junkies you know, they just want to get high. That's all they care about. But when I would see them up close and personal, the last impression I ever got was that this is something that they enjoyed or that they, that they really wanted, you know, to be involved with. Um, and that's when I really started to, to study addiction as a neurobiological midbrain disease and, and, and look at it from that perspective and you know, that really kind of opened up opened up a, a lot of um, you know a lot of understanding and, and like I said, empathy for me.
0: And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, my guest this morning, Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter, her new book, Mainlining Philadelphia: Survival, Hope and Resisting Drug Addiction. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with me, please, Jerry. Just say listen to Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter, Ph.D., Psydoc, Cy- 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 author of the Hi, new book. Hi, are you? Hi, author of the new book, Mainlining Philly, Survival, Hope, and Reexisting Drug Addiction, here on 94WIP. All right, Jerry, I hear you didn't fall into the trap, but what do you think it was that protected you? I mean so many young ladies probably started out with the best of intentions and now are in the cemetery.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think a lot of it was the fact that you know in the midst of the craziness and the dysfunction that was happening in my home um there were there were moments of what I would consider you know normalcy even though that probably wasn't the case and during those moments it was those conversations that my parents had with me. It was them kind of disclosing and sharing with me. You know, not all the not all of the, you know, the extra because there was a lot of extra and, and, and a lot of inappropriate things that 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 they did that they that they didn't share with me when I was younger, but just kind of being really 100% with me and being real with me and just sharing with me the stuff that they did regarding their drug use and regarding, you know, my mom, you know, t- you know, has talked a lot about, you know, being depressed or feeling depressed and and being anxious and a lot of that stuff is is taboo in homes a a lot of people don't talk about mental illness a lot of people don't talk about drug addiction because it's almost like it's a dirty word or or you know you feel like you have to get a shower after you start talking about mental health issues when the fact of the matter is that it's quite prevalent Um, especially in today's world I mean if it's if it's not you, it's 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 somebody very close to you, you know, that has struggled with with drug addiction or or mental illness or, you know, it's a friend of a friend or a coworker. I feel like it's very common. But to talk about it and to kind of, you know, put it out there is something that's still Um, very stigmatized and my parents you know again with with no formal education my dad like I said my dad dropped out of school in ninth grade my mother went to Mercy Tech vocational school for hairdressing um, you know way back when and 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 again no formal education but they, they made that point starting at a young age I mean and 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 as a psychologist it's it's when you're young Um, you know, when you're, you know, six, seven, eight, you know, even prior to middle school, when you see a lot of the, a lot of the DARE programs and a lot of the, you know, programs that are placed into into schools talking about, you know, not getting into or not using drugs. But even before that, if you can keep an open dialogue with your kids, which is what my parents did for me, um, that's really what helped me. uh, Because I remembered that stuff, even though they ended up, you know, you know, showing me, they didn't practice what they preached, they ended up showing me that they were still struggling, I still remembered, you know, what they told me. And then through seeing what happened to them, I I was like, you know what, I'm convinced, like, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to experiment, I don't need to go there, because I'm afraid that I will end up like them. And, you know, and it all goes back to my father's analogy about waking the monster up inside of me, and, and him explaining to me like, hey, you're wired differently, kid, you know, you You're wired to be addicted because of your genetic predisposition. My genetic predisposition is that there's addiction on both sides of the family um, there there's mental health issues my 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 maternal grandmother was bipolar one. my mom suffers from major depressive disorder and anxiety and i didn't I didn't want to test the waters because of that. So I think it was that early education and that continued those continued conversations. They were very informal conversations. My dad. You know, we'd be sitting, you know, in the living room on a Saturday morning because my mom always, you know, worked on Saturdays because she was a hairdresser. And, you know, when he was when things were quote unquote normal, we would just get into these conversations and he would just share with me, you know, his experiences and his stories and what he instilled in me were three you know, three really big things. You know, the, the, the first thing that he talked a lot about was education and getting your education, because as, you know, as somebody who, who didn't get his education, he saw that struggle. And he'd say to me, look, sir, I don't want you to have to live paycheck to paycheck. He's like, you don't want to have to do what me and mom do. And then he talked a lot about family and the importance of family and, and you know, respecting and loving your family. And then, you know, he talked, you know, he talked a lot about God. He wasn't, he wasn't necessarily Religious person, but he was a spiritual person. So he always talked about those three things. So that early education, instilling that in me, and then in, in conjunction with with that, it was confidence. You know, as a young girl um, or young boy, it doesn't matter. You know, you, you go through different stages in life, especially you know, pre-adolescence. Adolescence is a yicky time for a lot of people. I mean, you have a lot going on hormonally in your body. You start to get, you know, peer pressured. And my parents did a good job of making me feel confident and empowering me, Um, telling me. My father would always tell me, look, kid, you can do anything you put your mind to. You know, I believe in you. So to have somebody give you that confidence and believe in you like that and then give you that, that street education about, you know, don't do the same thing that I did. I think is what helped me. Maybe I also have a guardian angel out there because you know, Peter. By all by all statistical you know analyses, I really should be out there. So uh, I mean, those are the two things when I thought about it. And believe me, I thought about it. I've analyzed it a lot. Those are the two things that I've come up with that I think have helped me, you know, through this time. Also, as crazy as as, as things were. They, they worked really hard to, to get me a good education. So, you know, I went to Nazareth Academy High School for girls, and 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 the the women, you know, that are now, you know, my my soul sisters, you know, for life. You know, I met them there. They were a good influence, and and they're still my best friends to this day. Rayanne, you know, Angela, and and Sue Rexon, I, you know, Sue's actually the the godmother to to my two kids. So, you know, they tried to put me in good schools. Um, and I think having that and having, you know, a good guidance counselor and, and teachers that I looked up to, I think that also helped me because I looked at them as role models. Um, so I think things like that kind of put me on the right path, but I, I do have to give credit to, to my own um, kind of you know, resilience and internal strength for, for wanting to stay on that path. Because there were times when it would have been really easy for me to get high. I mean, when you have your, 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 you know, your mom, who's, who's, you know, you know, at first my mom started with Percocet and Vicodin and you know, she's popping Percocet and Vicodin and she's drinking. And then what, you know, this is in the book. What was crazy about it is she ended up doing that with all of my friends because my mother never wanted me to go out of the, go out of the house and, and, and party as a teenager. so, you know, when she and my father started to struggle, she literally brought the party to my house. I mean, there were keg parties at my house with my friends that my mom started partying with um, during this time. And, and I, was too, I was too afraid to do anything because I kept on thinking about that monster. And, um, and I think that that's what, you know, that's what helped me. And, and then a lot of those friends, unfortunately, um, that I was hanging out with, I mean, I think I lost, you know, six friends. Uh, my sophomore year of high school, these, these girls, you know, these individuals didn't go to Nazareth but you know, from from the neighborhood due to heroin overdoses. So um, you know it, it it was definitely hard. It was it was tempting at times, but um I believe in myself and that's what kind of kept me moving forward.
0: All right. You had teachers in your life, you had adult professionals in your life, both for your life and in your parents' life, your mm-hmm. father coming out of jail, probation parole. Oh yeah. All those things. Did anybody help or did they hurt? Me? Yes.
1: Um, the, the, I remember my guidance counselor at Nazareth Academy, Miss Janata, um, and she helped. She was the only person outside of, you know, e- even my girlfriends in high school, I, I even tried to keep it from them, the girls at Nazareth at first, how, how crazy things were at my house, but she helped me. She's the only person I felt comfortable talking to about what was happening in my home, Um, So that's one person, you know, in a school setting was my guidance counselor. I felt safe with her. She made me, you know, she she created a rapport between the two of us that made me feel safe. Um, And, you know, some members of my mother's family um, you know did make me feel comfortable, like my godmother at one point, I felt you know I felt cared for by her my my mother 's sister I felt cared for by her what, what, what got complicated was was the fact that they pretty much had cut my mother off and didn 't want anything to do with her anymore and that, and that was hard for me because i didn't i couldn 't understand that if somebody 's your family, even though they're they 're struggling with with something, how you just kind of cut them off now granted, my mother wasn 't an angel. But, you know, that that was kind of hard for me to, to, to kind of wrap my head around. The the other thing where as far as, you know, probation, you know, prob- you're talking about probation and people, you know, getting in and out of jail. There were some, you know, a lot of criminals in, in my life and, and uh, you know, that would be in and out of jail, you know, my parents, friends, and even my friends, uh, you know, as I got older, um, and believe it or not, they really respected me because you know at first it was like, hey Jerry, you want to smoke this joint or hey Jerry, you want to get high. And then when I was like, nah, man, no thanks, and it was it wasn't like a big deal. You know, I probably had to say no, you know, maybe four or five times. And then I got the nickname Sister Jerry. So they all started to call me Sister Jerry, like I was a nun, <laughs> um, because I wouldn't do anything. But um, but that but that kind of you know. I I wore it as as uh, as a badge of honor that I didn't do anything. But I learned a lot from people getting out of jail. I learned a lot from, you know, my parents' friends that were, you know, pretty hardcore criminals. Because, you know, when you sit down and you talk to these people and you listen to their story, their stories are worth listening to a lot of times because you can learn from their struggle. You don't have to create your own struggle. You don't have to go out there and try it for yourself when you have years of wisdom right in front of you. And I had years of wisdom. I had, you know, my father's wisdom and his mistakes, and then talking to his friends and um, seeing it with my own eyes, you know, and I, I took their experiences and, and I used that and internalized that as knowledge, not to want to go down that same road. Are your parents still alive? Um, sadly, my, my dad passed away in, in 2010 from pancreatic cancer. So um, I stopped talking to my dad from age 16 until I graduated Cabrini University. Um, So I thought, I think it was about six or seven years. We didn't talk and we didn't talk because, you know, the dad that I knew and the dad that cleaned himself up kind of dissipated. So he went back down and to Kensington, he bought this bar, utter nonsense. And, you know, he became, he was clean for, for years from, you know, from methamphetamine and heroin and the bar, And the influence and what was happening in his life, you know, triggered him to start drinking. So my dad really struggled with alcoholism later in life. So I didn't talk to him for a while because of what he was doing and the fact that he was drinking a lot and he just wasn't the same person. So I literally had to separate myself from him. And looking back at it, I think I did it because I wanted to idealize him and I wanted to remember him as the dad that had those conversations with me on Saturday morning. I didn't want to remember him as this guy that totally lost it and, you know, you know, started to drink and, and the monster came back out of him again. So I kind of separated myself. So what was cool about the relationship dynamics with me and my dad is that when I graduated college, I wanted to really stick it to him. So I wrote him a letter, and I said, you know, despite, you know, you not being around, um, I did it. I was the first person with the last name Utter in his, to graduate from college. And I sent him a letter, and I said, if you want, give me a call. And he called me almost immediately after receiving that letter, and we uh, we reconnected. And then from that point on, from the time I was 23 until he passed away when I was 30, we were inseparable. Um, he actually, you know, left the woman that he was with he had two more children. I, I have a half-brother who's 25 and a half-sister who's 18 from my father. Um, and at, at one point, it got so bad with the relationship he was having with this other woman that he moved in with me. And if, if you really want to hear a crazy twist, and this is all in the book, remember how I told you how my my mom ended up with that guy, Eddie, who was working for my dad and dealing drugs years ago? Right. Well, She ended up with that guy after they separated and she had a child with him. And now I have a half sister who's 25. So I went from being an only child to having these half siblings. Well, that half sister that's now 25, my father, my biological father became her foster parent because my mom really started to struggle with heroin a lot Um, and really, you know, was not in the picture. And her father, you know, the guy that used to work for my dad, Eddie, same thing, started to struggle with a lot of drugs and alcohol. So when my sister was 10, I ended up taking her from my mom and her father and raising her. And lo and behold, the person who had just moved in with me not that long before that was my father because he left this woman. So I needed help. I was working in radio, um, and you know how it is, Peter, with radio. Like when when you're in sales, you're you're at these live broadcasts. And I was in my 20s, and I was having a blast, and I needed help. So my father moved in, and actually ended up helping me take care of my half sister, um, and her her name's Dominique. We call her we call her Nikki. And um, and he raised he helped me raise my mother's daughter, um, for quite some time, and then. I ended up, um, you know, getting engaged and, and meeting a great guy named, named Greg Godfrey and um, very different family, you know, very upper middle class family I had really no idea how crazy my family was. I kind of I kind of worked really hard to hide how crazy my family was because I want to <laughs> I want Greg to like fall in love with me first before I kind of started to introduce him to the fact that I was raising this young child, that my father was living with me. Um, but anyway, we had a, we had a great relationship. Um, until he passed away Um, so after I had met my husband um, I moved out of my apartment my father moved in down the street from where my you know where me and my husband lived and um, shortly thereafter he got he got sick with with pancreatic cancer and sadly enough that pancreatic cancer um, is really related to years of a lot of abuse that he did to his body. So he was an intravenous drug user. So he, he used um, heroin interve- intravenously and methamphetamine and then mixed with the alcohol, um, he ended up getting hepatitis C from the intravenous drug use. Uh, with the with the hepatitis C scarring the liver and the scarring of the liver cirrhosis in conjunction with starting to drink, um, his liver was in really bad shape. And With that whole gastrointestinal system with the liver, the gallbladder, the pancreas, that really takes a beating, um, you know, when when you use drugs for an extended period of time. Um, And then he was also diabetic. So all of that kind of created a perfect storm and and, and made sense as to why why he would get pancreatic cancer. So he died in uh, September 3rd, uh, 2010. And I'm happy that I got those years with him because um, we hadn't talked for so long, and and you know we got a chance to reconcile and 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 create a good relationship with one another. My mom's still alive, um, and my mom's actually listening um, to, to the show right now. Uh, my mom can, you know, from I would say about 95 until you know, throughout the years has struggled um, with opioids and it's been an ongoing struggle for her. Um, She's been clean and sober from opioids um, since December of 2018. Um, But, you know, though she's doing great, you know, as far as, you know, utilizing opioids is concerned, she still does struggle with mental health issues. So she does, you know, still struggle with depression and anxiety and she does, you know, she does seek help for that and she does talk to someone. But every day when you're in recovery, whether it's from, substance use, or whether it's recovery in a general mental health sense, and you're you're working on trying to work on yourself when you have mental health issues, every day is a new day, and every day you have to work. You can't put your recovery on the back burner and say, I'm not going to do it today because it's Easter Sunday, or I don't feel like doing it today because it's rainy out. So every day, you know, she, she does what she has to do to, you know, to work on herself, um, you know, in order to try to, to, to stay clean and sober and, and to stay healthy.
0: Well, congratulations to you and to her. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and you're listening to WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be back in just a bit. We're back on WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning into the homestretch with Dr. Jerry <laughs> Lynn Utter. Her new book, Mainlining Philly, Survival, Hope, and Resisting Drug Addiction. All right, Jerry. Yeah. You, you said you have two children. What are their ages?
1: Uh, my daughter, Natalie, is five, and my son, Gregory, um, just turned nine. All
0: right. They're a little young, hopefully. But if, yeah. one, of the, if one of them came to you and said, Mom, yeah. I fell in a trap. Yeah. What would you say to them?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I would... The first thing I would do is 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 definitely not scream and yell and and try to shame them even more. Um, the first thing I would do is do what my parents did for me, which is just talk to them and be like, you know, tell me a little bit more about the trap. Like, what happened, buddy? Or, you know, why did you why did you want to do it? Why did you why did you feel as though you had to do it? And then, based upon what his responses were, you know, whether it was peer pressure, whether he was curious, or you know, whatever it is, I would kind of make my next move or or say the next thing based upon, you know, what he shared with me. Now, if it was early on where he had just experimented or she had just experimented, I would try to impart some of that knowledge that my dad gave me and and talk to them about the monster. My kids are are five and nine. I already talked to them about drug addiction and I already started talking to them and using the, the monster analogy. And, you know, I don't know if they if they if they quite get it yet, but 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 they understand um, that drugs hurt you. So my, my kids are athletes. My, my my kids love to play soccer. They love to play basketball. My husband, you know, played basketball in college and, and, and he actually played on that team. Um, the New York Nationals that played against the Globetrotters that used to get their butts kicked all the time. So basketball is something that happens in my house all the time. And the way I've been kind of breaking it down for my kids when we talk about drugs and alcohol is, hey, buddy, like you want to be able to run fast and you want to be able to have a good reaction time. Um, If you do drugs, like if you smoke cigarettes or if you do drugs, and, and he knows that my mom has struggled with drugs and alcohol, and he knows about my dad, even though he didn't meet him. I said, if you do all that stuff, buddy, you won't be able to play ball. Like your ball game will be completely off because it'll 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 slow you down. It'll make your body not feel good. It'll hurt your insides. So that's kind of, you know, the approach that I've taken with my son because he, he you know, he just turned nine um, last week. And I'm, I'm trying to have it resonate with him from a place that he understands because he loves basketball and sports so much. So I'm trying to say, hey, if you do this, it's going to hurt your ability to play. Um, So that's kind of the approach I'm taking out. And I'm mixing in, you know, the conversation about waking up the monster because when they see me, another thing that kids look at are their parents' behaviors. So um, if they see me drinking all the time or if they see me smoking all the time, um, even though you know, they know that they shouldn't do it, but they but they see me constantly doing it, that's a risk factor. Now, I know that sounds funny because I saw my parents doing it all the time um, and I was afraid to do it, but I think it's because of the, of the in-depth conversations they had. But if they see what my perception is of, of, of drinking and, and smoking and they see that me and my husband don't partake in that, then I'm hoping that, that that'll just be something that's that's ingrained in them. However, I'm I'm also super realistic. I mean, again, you have those adolescent years. You have those times when kids are going to want to experiment and kids are going to want to try things. And sometimes they try things to fit in and um, sometimes they try it just because they want to see how it'll make them feel. But, you know, my kids are wired the same way I am and it's in them. They have that addiction predisposition that they have that genetic vulnerability. And it will be you know similar for them, maybe the way the way it is for me that if they go there and if they try it, you know, you know kid A may be okay. Kid A may try it and and do it a couple of times and it may not be their thing, and they'll be okay with it. But my kid and myself, we're more kid B. So if we try it, we're gonna kind of activate that that part of the brain that's like, well, wow, we really like this and and then then that's when liking it and using it turns into compulsive using, and then compulsive using turns into uh, dependency, and then dependency turns into addiction. So, um, again, explaining that to a nine-year-old isn't going to resonate with him, but what does resonate with him at this point is, is keeping his body healthy, and, and that's my message to him. If you, if you partake in this stuff, even if you try it, it will mess with your game. So that's kind of the messaging that I give them today.
0: Do you have a private practice?
1: Um, I um, right now the majority of work that I do is with a pharmaceutical company. I work in medical affairs as a clinical psychologist, and we make a uh, medication that helps people get off of illicit opioids. So it helps somebody, um, you know, make the transition from you know utilizing heroin or utilizing Oxy- OxyContin. It's a medication that helps them transition off of illicit opioids. So that they don't have to go through, you know, terrible withdrawal and and and, and feeling very bad. Um, and what I do in that role is I educate medical doctors and prescribers around the country on the disease of addiction, and I talk to them specifically about the medication. And then I also um, still consult with uh, forensic cases. So I still, oddly enough, because, you know, my dad spent a lot of time in jail, I guess I like it there, too. So I, I work closely with the court system um, and I consult on cases for judges and for the probation department um, assessing um, consumers, you know, people who are incarcerated, a- a- assessing incarcerated individuals' mental health and figuring out a good plan for them prior to being um, discharged from, from jail so that, they, that when they get out into the community, they have a good mental health plan um, set up for them.
0: Well, if someone who retired from probation parole work after 35 years, I'm glad you're still there.
1: Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know. So, so you worked in the probation um, county like department?
0: Proba- county probation, yes.
1: What county were you in? Philadelphia. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and that, that, that is a thankless job. Um, and it's a hard job. So the fact that you did that for 35 years is super impressive. I talk to probation officers on a regular basis, and you guys really grind it out. So thank you for all of your all of your service for all those years in Philly County, nonetheless.
0: My pleasure. If we learned one thing from Mainlining Philly, what would you want us to learn?
1: Um, the main thing that I want this book to be is a source of, of inspiration and a source of hope, because... You know, I'm sure there's a lot of other kids, you know, out there right now that, that were like me or a lot of other people out there right now that, that were in the same situation as I was in where the cards were completely stacked against me. Um, I should have been a statistic. I should be out there using or, or what have you. And I want, you to know, I want them to know and I want people to know um, you can get out and you can make it. Um, you know, you just have to believe in yourself and love yourself enough and know that you can make it. We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fall flat on our face. I know I've had, you know, failures throughout my life, but the one thing I did was I I loved myself enough to, you know, get back up, brush myself off, and just keep on going. So I wanted to be a source of of hope and inspiration for people who find themselves in, in you know, a crazy family situation like I did, and then also um, for people who have family members struggling with addiction I also think there's an educational part of the book that really talks about you not harboring the guilt for, for a family member, a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife who's struggling with addiction because it's not your burden to bear. Yes, you probably weren't a perfect mother. We, none of us are. We're a perfect father or a perfect husband or wife or brother or sister, but I want people to know that it's not your burden to carry for someone else. If somebody's out there and they're in active addiction, what you you have to do or what you should do for yourself and for them is meet them where they are. When they're ready for help, be the first one there to drive them to rehab. Um, Don't, you know, try your best not to – not to enable folks, you know, when my mom was in active addiction, I heard every story in the book, you know, can, you know, I need money for this because, you know, of, of this really lavish, crazy reason when all the while, you know, she was trying to get money so she, so she could use. So I got slick to that after a while and I never, you know, I didn't give her money. I said, when you want help, you can call me, mom, if you're down Kensington and Somerset at three at three in the morning, you call me. And I will come pick you up and I will be the first one to take you to rehab or take you to the hospital. So I think the other thing I just want to impart on people who have a loved one who's struggling with addiction is that you can't force them into treatment because they have to want it. You have to have to want it for yourself in order for the process to work. So just be there for them when they are ready, you know, take them to rehab if they want, you know, clothes or a pack of cigarettes at rehab, you know, you know, do that for them. But don't give them money and, and, and don't put that burden on yourself as if it's your fault why they ended up where they are, because it, it's not. It's, it, it's their burden, um, just like recovery is their success. You can't take credit for someone's recovery and you can't take responsibility for somebody's relapse. Or for their addiction, but you can be there to meet them where they're at and support them. And then the final message is for people in reco- you know, for people who are out there. If you're struggling right now with addiction, if you've relapsed right now because of what's going on in the world, world as far as COVID-19 is concerned, you know, folks with mental health issues and with substance use issues are a vulnerable population. Now, everyone is a vulnerable population, so I'm sure a lot of folks have you know, relapsed or, or they've thought about using because of the state of the world. And, you know, the, the one piece of advice I want to give you is if you have relapsed, it's okay. Relapse is a part of this process. Addiction is a neurobiological midbrain disease. If you relapsed, I get it. But listen, today's a new day. It's, it's not even 8 o'clock in the morning yet. Get back up on the horse and try again. Just because you relapsed doesn't mean you should keep using do your best to try to get back up and, 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 and to work on your recovery. So I think, you know, they're the, they're the main things that I kind of wanted to convey. And, and Peter, I just want to thank you so much for having me. I sincerely appreciate it. And I think it's so cool that you worked in Philly probation. What's the next book? Um, I've already been asked to work on a book um, regarding trauma post COVID-19. So um, I already kind of started to work on that with, with, with a writer so, um, you know, that sounds like it's going to be the next book. But, you know, as of right now, my main focus is really just trying to work on Mainlining Philly. Um, it, it is available um, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble um, via ebook. So you can, you can download the electronic book. And I believe it's available April 14th.
0: And I'd like to say thank you to Jerry Lynn Utter, her new book, Mainlining Ferry." Thank you, Jerry.
1: Thank you so much.
0: My pleasure. And you've been listening to another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill, always interesting and provocative discussion in the year living room. I know I'll be listening. Finally, there's nothing left to say but wash your hands and stay safe.